0: My name is Colton White. I'm the associate pastor here at Renewal Church. And so if you have your Bible, um, go to Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. And while you're going there, I'll just mention again, uh, Matthew said at the beginning, but we are in a series called Trajectory, as we're talking about what we value here at Renewal Church. Um, So we're asking the question, what does God value? Well, those are the things that we want to value. And today we're talking about People. Yes, you. That's you. People. So, starting in verse 9 out of Romans 12, Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant In prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible... If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, if he is thirsty, give them something to drink, for by doing so will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, I want to start this morning with a really fun question. Okay? Actually, it's not fun. It's actually a very deep question, and you're probably going to hate me. Um, But here's the question, okay? The question of the morning is, what is the deepest longing of the human heart? Well, hold on. Hold that thought. (laughs) Pam is ready. She is ready this morning. Um, What is the deepest longing of the human heart? Or to make it simpler, if if you might struggle with that, what is the deepest longing of your heart? Now, I don't want you to yell it back at me, although that was a great answer, Good job, everybody. Um, but I want you to turn to your neighbor, right, and I want you to tell them, what is the deepest longing of your heart? Take a few seconds and go ahead and share it with your neighbor. What is the deepest longing of the human heart? And then if you finish early with them and you caught, made eye contact with someone else but you didn't acknowledge them, go ahead and tell that person to you. And I don't mean that the Dallas Cowboys would win the Super Bowl, like something more legitimate than that, (laughs) because they're not. Okay, go ahead and wrap those answers up. I don't want you to yell it back at me, although that was a great answer, uh, Pam, Um, and, and and I hope that you enjoy that. This is not a show, it's a communal event, and so I'm glad that you could participate Um, But I want to submit to you potentially an area of what you said, and I'm not going to be 100% correct, um, but I think a couple of the things I say may hit home with some of you. Now, some of you probably did have unique answers like the Cowboys winning the Super Bowl. That's unique to you and no one else, Um, but I want to submit to you to maybe what you said. I think that some of you might have said that the human heart longs for community, or to be loved are to be fully known, are to belong, to be intimately connected with other people for the sake of community. And I would say that you're right, that, that that is a good answer. If you think about the history of all things, some of the most heroic things have been done by people for the sake of community, right? You think about different military acts and different heroic stories. You think about Tragedies, there's always stories that come out of someone doing something heroic for somebody else. You think about some of the things that you've done, maybe for your family, right? That's because of your sense of belonging. And then the other side of that is what? That some of us have done some dumb things for the sake of community. Like you think back to your junior high and high school years, that you dressed like that, or you said that, or maybe you ate that because of a dare or a triple dog dare, right? Like, there are things that you've eaten that you did so that you would belong, right? I can think of countless things that I did, that I ate, that I wish I would not have ever eaten, right? And it was for the sake of community that you would have a place to belong. Now, some of you may have said this to the answer to that question, which is, I believe that the longing, the greatest longing of the human heart is to have a purpose, right? to have a cause, to have something to do to make an impact on the world. And I would say that those two answers, community and purpose, go hand in hand, right? That a great community creates a great purpose. And when I say great, I don't mean good necessarily. Like there have been bad purposes that have created bad communities when you look at history, right? But a community creates purpose, and a purpose is built around a community. Those are two things that God has wired into us. He has built us to care about those two things. It's interesting, I've been we had our New Start class a couple weeks ago, and so Matthew and I have been meeting with different folks um, that are interested in joining as covenant members of Renewal Church, and it's been so good to hear their stories. But what's been interesting is that without fail, each person that I've talked to has And when they talk about why they want to join Renewal Church, they've talked about one or both of those things. Belonging and purpose. That they are wired, they want to belong to a group of people, and they want to have a purpose. It's wired into us. But there's a reality, right? That there are some of you in here, when we talk about belonging and community and purpose, you don't feel that. There's a disconnect there that some of you have been really hurt by community. You've been really hurt by community. It sounds profound, but as you look back at what's happened in your life, maybe you trusted a community and it didn't work out. Maybe you trusted a group of people and you felt excluded. Or maybe you never felt welcomed in the first place, that for some of you in here, there was a time, or maybe it's even now, when you feel like you weren't valued, when they didn't really see you. And there are also maybe some of you in here who want to belong and to have a purpose, but you're afraid that if we really knew you, then we wouldn't want you. Like if we knew the things that the externals don't tell us, that we wouldn't welcome you here that you'd say, this sounds great, but if I told you some of the things that I've done or the places I've been, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say, you wouldn't welcome me here. And then there's some of you who have been valued or or given worth um, because simply of what you do. Like you have a gift, like you're really good at guitar, or you have a lot of money, or just like there's always that one person in a group that has a truck, right? (laughs) And you're like, hey, oh, we need to call Joe, because Joe's got a truck right and so joe only feels valued because he has a truck right that's why i don't own a truck it's because i don't want everyone calling me all the time and so that one person though right that that feels valued because of what they do and maybe that's you or you have a skill you have a gift and you've only felt valued because of what you can do and no one really got to know you right so i'm not naive enough to some preach some flower sermon about belonging and purpose I'm not naive enough to, to know that there are some of you in here that feel very disconnected with this. Because you've been hurt. Or because you've hidden. You've kind of hidden in the background. Because you're afraid of what they might think. Or because you have not been valued for you. And so today, I want to ask three questions. Why does God value you? So why does God value you, the person? How did Jesus value people? And how should the people of the church value one another? So, our first question is, why does God value you? Go, get your Bible and go to Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. So, just in case you didn't know, that's on page 1 of the Bible. Um, so, very beginning. Um, and let me read it to you while you're going there. Verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. After our Likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the, cre- the things of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's interesting about verses 26 through 28 is that in Genesis 1, and and when we get to verse 26, there is a break in the rhythm of the chapter. So if you look at the verses before this, there's a rhythm, right? So God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be plants, and there was plants. God said, let there be, and there was. So there is a certain rhythm to how Genesis 1 Plays out, But when we get to verse 26, it shifts. And for the first time, and catch this, for the first time we are explicitly introduced to the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And they say, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That God shows a value, so it's very simple, right? God shows a value to people by making them in his image, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in perfect community with one another. Have you thought about that? That the Father loves the Son perfectly. The Son loves the Spirit perfectly, and the Spirit loves the Father perfectly. There is a perfect community happening within God. Have you ever thought about that? Like, God is love. Have you heard that verse? And 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 a lot of times when we hear that verse, we think, okay, that's an action statement that God is love. That's a character statement about God, because within the triune God there is perfect love. God is in His essence love, living in perfect community with one another, three in one, one in three. God is love, and what has happened is as God has invited us, given us value. By creating us in that image to experience community as he does. Not that he needs us. He doesn't need us for that. But he creates us in his likeness and in his image to experience that same community. That we would experience love. What it means to be loved, like the father loves the son. What it means to be fully known, like the son knows the spirit. You see it? Let us make man in our image. Perfect community. It's crazy, right? It's beautiful. And so God invites us in as a gift of grace. Not that he needed us, but as a gift of grace so that we could experience that same community with him and with one another, which leads me to my second point. That God has made us like him and that we have been given value above all other things in world. So, you will, the stars will never experience God like you do. Did you know that? The stars, beautiful, will never experience God like you do. Your dog, whom you either love or hate, will never experience God like you do. He won't. That God has given us value, humankind value, in that we can experience who God is like no other part of creation can. And that's interesting, right? Like animals, in light of the fall, will never experience shame like me and you do, right? That sin has entered the world, and part of our value is that we get to experience what it means to to have shame, that we can know that when I've disobeyed God, whereas my dog Springer doesn't, Like, like, so, okay, so our dog, Springer, is notorious for taking food around the house, like finding food from our irresponsibility of leaving it out, and taking it and hiding it around the house. Okay, so one time we got pizza and we had pizza out on the dining room table, and we left it out because we're irresponsible without any kids, and because we can do whatever we want. Sorry, parents. Um, but um, so we we got these this pizza and we left it out on the table, went to bed, and we both had to leave the next morning pretty early. And so I got back before Katie and I got home and I saw that the pizza box was on the floor. And I'm like, oh no, Springer ate all the pizza. And I'm thinking, there's gonna be throw up everywhere. Like, it's gonna be a bad moment. But here's the deal, I can't discipline him, right? Because it's been hours later. And if I discipline him and yell at him, he's gonna be confused and not know why I'm disciplining him. So there's like nothing I can do in this moment, but move on. So I go to the couch and I sit down. And all of a sudden, I feel this like cold substance on my hip, and I start to look around, and I pick up the couch cushion, and there's a slice of pizza hidden in the couch, okay? And I begin to explore, and I find that there are slices of pizza hidden everywhere, like in the comforter in our guest bed, guest bed um, under Katie's desk, like he had taken some papers and pushed them with his nose and covered the slice of pizza, like, like he's too smart for his own good, and so I picked up the piece of pizza and I yelled, No, you don't do this. And what do you think he did? He got his little paws and he put them on the ground. And he got his nose and he put them down and he looked at me with these little puppy eyes. And what was he experiencing in that moment? Do you think it was shame? No, it was fear. Because he's afraid of me, number one, and two, he's not gonna get the piece of pizza. Right? It wasn't shame. He doesn't experience disobedience like that. We do because we have value, because God wants to know us. He wants us to experience community with him. Does that make sense? And so the world, creation, will never experience God like we do because he's given us value. He's created us for community for the sake of his glory. That you have been separated. You've been separated to belong and for a purpose. That you would belong to God, you would experience community with him and with his people, and that you would have dominion over the world, be fruitful and multiply for his glory as a purpose. It's wired into us that humanity, humans, have value. That's why we care about the orphan. That's why we care about the elderly. That's why we care about those with special needs. That's why we care about the unborn child. That's why your skin color doesn't matter. It's because each person has value. Second question, how did Jesus value people? Jesus treated people as if they were in the image of God. He didn't treat them based on what they had done, or what they could do, or what the world, how the world said they should be treated, but he treated them as a person in the image of God. Consider John chapter 4 where Jesus and the disciples are traveling, and they stop to get some water in a town called Samaria. They come up to a, uh, he comes up to a well, and a girl walks up, and he asks her, Hey, can I get a drink? Can you give me a drink of water? And that act alone, that act alone goes against every social rule that has ever existed in first century. In fact, in verse 9, she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria. But Jesus acknowledges her, and he sits down with this woman, and he shows her value. And then in verse 10, he offers himself to her. said, if you knew who was asking you to give you a drink, you would have asked me for living water. So not only does he speak to her, but he offers himself to her. And then they have this conversation about her sin and worship. And she tells him, she says, I know that one day a Messiah is coming, and he's going to tell us all things. And then I love it. He looks at her, and he says, I'm him. (laughs) He hadn't even told the disciples that yet. This was a secret. No one knew. Like, he had only used uh, parables or different kinds of language. Like, I'm a vine from a branch spread out from a tree. And like, no one knows what that means. But he explicitly sits with this woman who's living in sin and alienated from everybody else and he tells her, I'm the Messiah. He shows her value. He doesn't condemn her or assume what she is or how she is. She doesn't, he doesn't assume things about her, but he treats her as if she has value. In the very next chapter in John chapter 5, um, it says that they went to a pool called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. And multitudes of people would come to this pool for healing. And there's this guy there that the text says has been invalid for 38 years, so paralyzed. And it's so interesting. It says that Jesus saw him and knew that he'd been there for a long time. And so Jesus takes a moment to come up to this guy and listen to this. He says, do you want to be healed? He asks this guy that. And then it's so crazy. This guy looks at him. This is the guy's response. He says, I don't have anyone to put me in the pool You think about this, there's this pool that's there that he believes will heal him. He's been paralyzed for 38 years, and he doesn't have anybody to just move him to the pool. And he's sitting there, and no one notices him. And Jesus comes up to him, and he says, he looks at this guy, and he says, get up, take your bed, and walk. Jesus doesn't need a pool, but he looks at this guy, and here's what he does that we don't do enough. He looks at this guy, and he notices him. He doesn't have anyone to put him in the pool, but he notices him, and he helps. He shows this guy value when everyone else is just walking past. Move on to John chapter 7. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and all of a sudden there's a loud group of people that come in, a group of Pharisees, and they throw a woman down at the feet of Jesus, and, and she's partially nude. She's ashamed. It's craziness. It's craziness. And they say to Jesus, this woman has been caught in adultery, and the law in Moses says that we should stone such women. What do you say? What do you say? And Jesus, check this out. Jesus begins to get down on his knees and write in the dirt. Now, we don't know what he wrote, and if you ever hear a pastor or preacher or someone say that he wrote this, they don't know. He could have drawn a rainbow, for all we know. We have no idea what Jesus wrote, but he begins to write in the dirt, and the text says that one by one, oldest to youngest, they begin to walk away. Like, be in that moment. It's loud. This crowd comes in, and they're rambunctious, and they're violent, and this woman who probably already felt shame because of what she did is all of a sudden put on display for the world, and now her physical life is in danger and one by one she can hear the stones fall to the ground and then Jesus looks at her and he says has he says where are they has no one condemned you and i imagine she looked up and saw that there was no one there and she says no one lord he cares about the person not the external and then he points her to hope he says Go and sin no more. He says, I don't commit, condemn you either. Go and sin no more. So not only does he show, your, show her value in that moment, just by noticing her and caring, but he then points her towards hope. Right? Luke 15.1, is very simple one verse. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. The tax collectors and sinners were drawing near near to him. There isn't an analogy in 2019 that I could give you that would explain how bad the tax collectors were, the gravity of sin that they carried. But you know what it says? They drew near to Jesus. Think about that. Why? Because he valued them. Here's a question for us to ponder. As the church, as we interact with the world, do the tax collectors and sinners of the world naturally draw near to us? because of the value that we've given them? Can we say that about us? That we have given people such value and care that they naturally draw near to us. God values people. We want to be a church that values people. And if at any point you've come in here and you have not felt valued, we are sorry. That's not okay. Because our God values people. And so you are to be valued and cared for and known. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? It's so the third question How should the people of the church value one another? Romans 12, starting in verse 9, it says, Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Now, there are two, word, two ways to interpret this word out of the Greek, and I, and I don't typically like to spend time on that, so I'll just say this. The ESV goes with the word genuine here, okay? But the NASB and some other translations go with without hypocrisy. So, let love be without hypocrisy. So, both are right. Let love be genuine and let love be without hypocrisy. Both are right They're just said in different ways. One is positive, right? Let love be genuine, right? And then one is negative. Let love be without hypocrisy, okay? So it's two different ways to think about the text. So Paul says this phrase first, let love be genuine on purpose because everything else is going to flow from that line. If we're not genuine or if we are hypocritical, then nothing else in here is gonna be true. So let me define hypocrisy, real quick. Hypocrisy is pretending to look a certain way that's not really true to who you really are. It's the idea that we communicate to everyone else, especially in the church context, everyone else, that all is okay when it's really not. That everything is okay in my marriage when it's not. That everything is okay with my kids when it's not. That everything is okay in our relationships when it's not. That we pretend that we're not struggling with secret sin when we are, and let me say this as graciously as I can, as a church, we cannot afford to play that game. As a church, we cannot afford to play the game, the game where the church is filled with men and women who understand understand enough about Christianity to play the game of the externals, to where I know just enough about how I should look that I present myself in a way where you look at the externals of my life and go, they're fine. Or you say, I'm fine, and we believe you. That is a dangerous game, and it has no place in the church. Because we value you too, too much for you not to experience or have a real encounter with Jesus. And you will never have a real encounter with Jesus if you're playing the game of the externals. If your love is not genuine, or if your love is, without, is not without hypocrisy. Which leads me to the next point. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Because church is more than a shallow social club, we care about the sin in your life. The most cowardly or shallow and empty kind of love that there is, if you can even call it love, is when you see a brother or sister who is explicitly in sin, or even flirting with sin, and you choose to be silent, abhor what is evil, hate what is evil, because here's what happens, we'll see someone who's in sin, and we'll do one of two things, one, we'll say, hope that, hope that works out for them, I really hope that they're okay, or we'll come to go to somebody else, and we'll say, you know, I saw that they were struggling with this, like, we should pray for them, but you never actually talk to them, Right? And so the follower of Christ who sees a brother or sister in sin needs to approach them. Why? Because they hate what God hates. And God hates sin. That's why if you look through the Beatitudes, he says things like, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, what? What? look away. No, he doesn't say that. He says, tear it out and throw it away because it's better for one member of your body to be displaced rather than for your whole body to be thrown into hell because God hates sin. The most genuine and loving thing that you can do for a fellow brother or sister is to take them to a cup of coffee and say, hey, let's have a conversation about your sin and what's going on in your life. That is genuine and is without Hypocrisy. And here's the thing that some of you are like, well, this part doesn't apply to me. No one is safe. I'm not safe. Matthew's not safe. None of us in here are safe from what sin can do to us. A lot of times we treat sin like a lion, like like it's a pet lion. Like we think, oh, it's okay to have a lion in my room. And so we pet it, we caress it, we care for it. And then everyone else sees that lion, and before we know it, that lion has eaten you because it's a lion. That makes sense. One plus one equals two, right? And so for us, each other, we have to watch and be okay and have enough genuine love and transformation in our hearts that we can go, hey, can we have a conversation about what's going on? It's genuine and it is loving. But it's also not okay for you to just point out everybody's sins, right? (laughs) That's not okay either. And that's why he says, hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, that I would hate the sin that's in you and we would have a conversation about that. But then I wouldn't leave you in there, like, hey, here's everything that you're doing wrong. See you later. Like, that's not okay. That you would have a conversation, and you would sit with them, and you would pray, and you would fight that struggle with them. That you would point them towards what's good. That you would point them towards Jesus Christ. And as a church, we value you too much to not do that with you. That we would be honest about your sin. You would be honest about our sin, and that we would point you to Jesus Christ. Verse 10, he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, this statement carries with it an emotion and an action. Love one one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. So when it says, Love one another with brotherly brotherly affection, that's an emotional charge, which for some of you men can make you a little bit uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Um, The guy who discipled me in my early 20s, he used to say it this way, and I'll never forget it because it's the most awkward thing I've ever heard a pastor say. Um, He said about this passage, our guts should tingle for one another. Isn't that weird? That's weird, right? Like, Like when I see you, my guts should tingle for you. That's awkward, but I loved it. Because here's what that carries. When we see each other, there should be feelings there. There should be affection there because there's genuine love. Because we hate what's evil, we hold fast to what is good, and our common faith in Jesus Christ, because he's better than anything else, I feel for you. My guts tingle for you. Does that make sense? And then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. And, you know, honestly those who focus on the external, like they put on the display for everyone else to see, they struggle with verses like, love one another with brotherly affection. That's hard for them. Because you can't do that on your own. Like, I can't just make my guts tingle for you, right? God does that through a transformed heart, through a true encounter with Jesus. He changes my heart, and we have affections for one another. So those that hide in the externals, have a hard time with verses like these because they like the do verses. Do this, do that, because it's easy then to know how to show what you want to show. But to have a true encounter, true transformation, to really value one another, you have to have a true encounter with Jesus. Your heart has to be transformed. So outdo one another in showing honor, that's easy if I have affections for you. If I genuinely care for you, that's easy. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. When I became a Christian, there was a guy named James Cheeseman. So just in the name Cheeseman, you would say he's probably a pretty cheesy guy, right? Um, But he was, uh, when I got saved, he was in the youth group, and he was the goofiest, cheesiest, most awkward person I've ever met, still to this day, in my life but there was something about James that I wanted to be around. There was something contagious about him. Like I would make fun of him like with my non-Christian friends, right? But then I would be itching to hang out with him. (laughs) Like he always wore the cheesy Christian t-shirts, like the one that looked like Sprite logo, but said spirit, you know? Like he always wore those kinds of shirts and said the like cheesiest things, but I wanted to be around him. There was something about him that was contagious, and it was because he had a zeal for Jesus that I had never seen before. He genuinely cared for me, cared for the people around me. He had a zeal that I just didn't know how to imitate, but I wanted to. That's us. That we, value, we should value each other enough to be honest about our zeal, <laughs> that we wouldn't be ashamed to raise our hands or to, shay, to say cheesy things to one another, like my guts tingle for you. Like, like we shouldn't be ashamed of that because God values us and we value one another. And then he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This one's easy when all the others take place. And honestly, as you go through the rest of these, it's a flow. And so we don't have time to walk through every single verse, but it starts with genuine love and an encounter with Jesus. And here's one thing else I'll say about this whole text. There is nothing in here that Paul is asking us to do that Jesus has not already modeled for us how to do. Think about it. Genuine love, show honor, have brotherly affection. There is nothing in here that Paul is asking us to do that Jesus has not already done. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced. He with when Lazarus died with, with Mary. right? He wept with those. He, he wasn't haughty, but associated with the lowly. Luke 15, the tax collectors and the sinners. He didn't repay evil for evil. When he's on the cross, he looks to them and says, God, forgive them, for they not know what they do. He didn't repay evil for evil. As you go through these verses, there is nothing that Paul is asking us to do that Jesus has not already modeled for us. And so what I would ask of you, what I would ask of you is that you would love, you would genuinely love one another. So how do we do this at Renewal Church? Practically, this all sounds good and profound and blah, 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 but how do we do this? Practically. Well, home groups. Home groups is the primary way that we want to get to know you. We want to genuinely know you. It's interesting, we're in the middle of our July sabbatical, um, and so all of our home groups are kind of taking a hiatus, and resting and recharging and preparing for the, for the fall with vacations and stuff going on. And during that time, I've been going around and trying to meet with all of our home group leaders. And I've met with about half of them so far. And each of them, each of the ones that I've met with so far, have shared just a genuine care for their people. For example, I'll, I'll pick on Kathy and Yoni Yastalo because they're not here today. <laughs> if they watch the video, it'll be funny. Um, and so they're not here, but I met with them last week. And uh, we get into their house, and I sit down on the couch, and I just ask one question, more of a chit-chat question. How's it going? You know, I like, not start the meeting yet. It's just chit-chat. And Kathy begins to, not kidding, for 30 to 45 minutes, walk through every single person that has ever come to her home group and talk about what she's celebrating about them, about what God is doing, what her fears are for them, how she's praying for them. And she walked through each person that has ever come to their home group and showed a genuine affection, fear, and love for each one of them. And I believe that's, that's universal among, among all of our home group leaders. And so if you've never checked out a home group, I would encourage you to do that. And then the very last thing, I mentioned it earlier. If at any point you've walked into this building and have not valued, felt valued, we're sorry. That's not who we want to be. And so I don't want to say all this and not acknowledge that, that we're not perfect. That there will be times when we, you will not feel valued. But here's what I'll ask of you in that, in that moment, that you would let us know. That you would be honest about how we're doing as a church. If we're not valuing people, then what are we doing? If we're not valuing the world and where they're at, if we're not valuing one another, if we're not displaying to you that God values you, then let us know. We want to know. We want to be better. We want to show you that God values. And here's the way that you will know that you are valued over anything else. That Jesus has come from perfect heaven to broken earth, put on our flesh, and died the death that you should have died. That is how you know you're valued. It's because Jesus has come and taken the penalty of your sin, and now you're free. You don't need to earn anything. You don't need to earn anyone's approval. You don't need to put on these certain externals that make you feel this way. You have everything that you need in Jesus. And you're free to love us. You have nothing left to prove.